Amen. As you're being seated, uh, let me say welcome again. And today begins, today begins what the Christian calendar calls Advent. And Advent is the coming or arrival of the one, the, the Christ King, Christ the King. And so beginning today and then through the next three Sundays, we will, we will attempt to answer this question, or see at least some facet of it, what child is this that's born? We, we acknowledge, I think all in this room would acknowledge that we are celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ and Advent is a time for us to ask the question, what does that mean? How does that affect me, us, here, now? And so if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We'll spend our time today and our next times together in Matthew chapter 1 attempting to answer this question and in pushing back, if you will, on the pervasive uh, turn of our culture, which is consumerism. And so we, we take an honest look at who we are and where we are in our faith in Jesus Christ and who we are in Christ. And so in Matthew chapter 1, while you're turning there, let me set the stage uh, for you in the in the very beginning of the Bible, in the very first page of the Bible, of the scriptures, Genesis one one says this: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is where we know that this is where it all begins. And out of gracious love and sheer delight. God created everything. He started with raw materials and then he begins to draw out of these raw materials all that's there. And in verse 2 it tells us, he says it's without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then he begins to creatively and lovingly bring out this life from this all of this raw material until Finally, at the climax of his creation, he creates humans. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we are the climax of his creation, he, the centerpiece, if you will. It tells us that he makes us in his own image. He created man and woman in his own image. So that, for many reasons, but so that we can know him and love Him, so that we can begin to draw out of His creation what's there. And you know this, right? You like a good wooden bat over a metal bat, right? Someone drew that out of creation. They looked at that tree to determine that that could be drawn out of that. We were made for that. We were made to love one another, to know one another, so that we can care for one another and develop each other. And all of this, all of that is for His glory. There is no question about that. However, if you continue to read in Genesis, you get to Genesis 3. 
Instead of Adam and Eve nurturing and cultivating God's good creation and making it, if you will, better and better, drawing out of its potential, they, they spoil His good creation. And for the first time in Genesis 3, we see sin. And in that moment, Adam and Eve, when they pick of the fruit of the tree and they eat it, they commit cre- treason against the king. And all of creation was fractured, broken, sin entered in. Everything was broken. And as a result, this infection of sin begins to stain and impact every area of life. We are very well aware of that today. It impacted us. It impacted nature. It impacted our relationship with God, our relationship with with the elements, with nature, our relationship with each other, all of it was, was broken. God, in His great mercy, begins the work at this point of rescuing humanity and righting all of that wrong. So how does He do that? How does He do this? How does He rescue and make right everything that is broken? Well, He chooses one person, Abraham. And the Creator, He makes two great once and for all promises to once and for all heal the world. He promises Abraham a son and a land. And and through His Son, God's going to raise up a nation in this land. And this is how God is going to rescue the entire creation from what really is a catastrophe. The catastrophe catastrophe of sin. So through Abraham, through his descendants, through the people of Israel, God will cause all the families of the earth to be blessed. That's what he tells us in Genesis. But if you keep reading the Old Testament, you you quickly see that uh, Israel herself is a part of the problem. Over and over they squander all of this that God gives them. In fact, by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament... The story of Israel and God's work through Israel to rescue the world is stalled out, is the way one author wrote it. It's it's really this unfinished narrative. You get to the end of the Old Testament and things are supposed to happen that haven't happened. And when you read the Old Testament, you see great beginnings and all of these incredible visions of, of God's plan and His purposes and then there's this steadily, steady decline. And it's puzzling and it's shameful. All of these failures. And it's as if the Old Testament ends with a question mark. This, this pregnant pause. As if it's unfinished. And then in the very first book of the New Testament. The Gospel according to Matthew. Which is where you should be in your Bible. In the very first words of the book. Matthew, Matthew signals that this long await is over. See, Matthew grew up reading and memorizing the Old Testament in its Greek translation. And if, and if you're like Matthew, if you've been immersed in the Old Testament since you were a child and you were raised in a culture that's immersed in the stories and the phrases of the Old Testament, this is your Harry Potter This is your Hunger Games. 
Things are said and your mind immediately goes there. You know it. You're immersed in it. And Matthew, when you read this, when you hear these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, your mind goes to a place. So so let me read verses 1 through 17 with me, because we're not going to ask for a show of hands. But my guess is if, if you've spent much time around the Bible in the church and you've read the Bible, my guess is that many of us, do not spend much time in the Old Testament. We get there and we skip over it because it's, it's just a genealogy. So we're going to spend a few weeks in the genealogy. So let me read it for you. And then I want to go back to this phrase that Matthew begins with because it's packed. It's packed with meaning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram and Ram, the father of Amenadab and Amenadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconia and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconia was the father of Shealtiel, And Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abidu. And Abidu, the father of Elikim. And Elikim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achok, Achok the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, maybe in your Bible, maybe in your translation, it says uh, this is the book of the generations of. Maybe it says the book of the genealogy of. But if, if you're, like I said earlier, if you're Matthew, if you're his reader and you're immersed in the Old Testament, this is your Harry Potter. This is your Hunger Games. This is your book. And any kind of illusion there, your mind immediately goes to that place. So Matthew, he begins his gospel with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe your mind doesn't go there, but but if if you're immersed in the Old Testament, if you know the stories of the Old Testament, your mind goes to Genesis chapter five, verse one. You, You don't have to turn there. You can follow along or write it down. And it reads this. This is the book of the generations of 
Now, in Matthew's gospel, in his, in his Greek writing, he uses two words here. Biblios, genesios. You don't, you don't have to know Greek, but you need to know these words. Biblios, genesios. And you can hear this, these words. There's Biblios' book. Genesios is... Phil Collins had a band named this. Some of you remember Phil Collins. Genesis. Okay. Book. And Genesis, so chapter 5 of Genesis, verse 1, reads like this. This is the book of the generations or Genesis of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And it's not just in Genesis 5.1, it's also in Genesis 2.4. The Genesis, or the generations of. These are the generations or the Genesis of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So Matthew, he begins his gospel here with this phrase from the story of God's original creation of the world and of Adam. What's he doing here? Now, some could make the case there's some statistical points. I, what Matthew is doing is making a theological point here, and we're going to look at that today. He, he's saying that the coming of Jesus is as profound and as powerful and as unrepeatable. Don't miss that. As profound, as powerful and unrepeatable as the original act of creation where God brought everything into existence. This is a big moment. This is not simply a genealogy. Matthew knows when he's looking back and he's recording what's about to happen, what did happen. And when you read this, you need to know that it's as powerful and unrepeatable as when he spoke the cosmos into being and when he created man out of the dust of the ground. And if you continue reading in Matthew's gospel, you get to things like in chapter 3, verse 16, we see where we see the Spirit of God. He descends like a dove over the waters. And this time it's the waters of the Jordan at Jesus' baptism. And if you ask this, yourself the question, where's the last time we saw this? We read this earlier in Genesis. It's when God's drawing out life in his creation. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters and he begins to speak things into being and he calls the light light. and the, he, he begins to do those things, but he has these raw materials. The Spirit of God is hovering there. The coming of Jesus is a new beginning. It's a brand new beginning. Matthew is telling us that the deepest beginning in history, one author wrote, in history was not the birth of the world, but the birth of our world's Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Matthew, he launches into this genealogy. But why does he do this? Why does he give us? Why does he begin? Why has the church for two millennia began the New Testament with a genealogy. There's a reason this is there. They didn't begin with Colossians or Ephesians or Philippians. There's a reason that we begin the New Testament with a genealogy. But, but why does Matthew do this? Well, genealogy is a fairly common technique in the Bible. And Israel, like many societies in that time, they held their identity in genealogies. It's a very powerful way to, to condense and summarize history. You, you can look back over the genealogy of your family and learn a great deal in looking at a little tree. A great deal about your family. It's a very powerful way to condense it and to summarize it. 
So, and you need to remember that as I'm reading those names, some of those names are brand new to you. Some of them you've never heard before. Some of them you, you've heard for the very first time, or maybe you've read them and you, they, they, they don't evoke any kind of thought. But to Matthew's readers, every single name in this genealogy evokes a memory of the stories of their people. It, it, it evokes history, something they're familiar, some, they're familiar with. And he constructs this genealogy in a way that he highlights three chapters, three great chapters in, in Israel's history. And if you don't miss it, it's, if you don't get it, it's okay, because he tells us in chapter, or verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. There's a chapter. And from, the, and from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. There's a chapter. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. There's a chapter. What's his point? I said earlier, it's not t- statistical. It's theological. There's three groups of 14. That's six groups of seven. I'm not making this stuff up. This is six groups of seven. You can do them. You can read it. You can read in First Chronicles where he copies the genealogy from. There's six groups of seven. Who's at the beginning of the seventh generation? Jesus Christ. The seventh seven. It's the most significant number in all of the scriptures. In all of the Bible. And Jesus here is the seventh seven. What Matthew is doing, he's making a strong claim that the birth of Jesus, with his birth, that the time of waiting for the long-anticipated, long-expected, long-desired king is over. He's here. Jesus the Christ, the seventh seven, is here. We would hear about this in, in Paul's writings. He's the firstborn of all creation. But, but Matthew is wanted, wanting to tell us something here. When you add up the meaning of history, the bottom line, Matthew is telling us, is Jesus Christ. The meaning of all of history is Jesus Christ. The long story of God's rescue, the story of God's promises to Abraham and his people has come to its fulfillment. That's the reason we started in Genesis. He's the seventh seven. He's the new David. He's going to rescue his people. Time's not going to permit us today, but I, I love this. I'd love to talk with you further about this. But Matthew is doing some wild stuff here with the genealogy. Uh, there's this Hebrew uh, way of looking at words. It's called gematria. For some of you, it'll mean something and some of you will be excited. But you take, these, you take the Hebrew name and, and you give each letter a, a value and you add up the value. And David, um, if you, there's, there's uh, three consonants in David's name. And if you add them up, they equal 14. And he's the 14th name in the list. It's an incredible thing. You, you can't escape the fact that Matthew is saying here that this is the long anticipated. All of, all of God's word has been pointing to this from, from, from the very beginning in Genesis when he promises the seed that will crush the head of the serpent all the way through Genesis or Isaiah 9 where he talks about uh, the son that will be born of a virgin and, the, and, and he talks about that it's not only Emmanuel, God with us, but it's God himself that will be us and Matthew is saying to these people, he is here. All of this that I'm writing is significant. All of it has meaning. Every name in this means something. Because if you go back and look in Chronicles, he leaves some people out. They just get erased from history. Matthew is recording something very, very significant here. 
And he wants us to see that Jesus has come to deliver us from the burdens that have been imposed by the Pharisees. He comes to release our burdens, release our sin, the burdens of the law, the burdens of anxiety and fear. He's the last Adam. The goal of Adam. He's Adam perfect. The first Adam failed. The the New Testament writers, Paul particularly, knew this well. What, What Adam could not do, Christ did perfectly. This is the Messiah, the firstborn of all creation. He's the great rest for your soul that your soul, whether you know it or not, is longing for. Now, how exactly does Jesus pull this off? Right? So there's this long anticipated uh, history. There's, there's a history of sin. Genesis 3, we hear this. It's this digression. It gets worse and failure after failure after failure. And there's this pregnant pause. And now we have Matthew saying the, the wait is over. The great rescuer is here. But how is he going to rescue? How is he going to make right everything that's been broken? How's he going to rescue souls All that have been broken through all of mankind. Well, it's a remarkable thing. Something Matthew would have us to believe that's more remarkable than the original creation. So let's look at this genealogy. Remember, I said it's a very powerful way to condense and to summarize history. So look at verse two with me. You you got the you picked up the rhythm as we read through here. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and so on, and so on, and so on. You get that? It's a steady rhythm. But in the middle of this, what you would call this tight cadence, how we're marching along as we read this, you get a few you get a few distractions, some, uh, some ways that he detracts from this so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father and so-and-so. There are a few places where Matthew picks up from this, lifts out of this, breaks his cadence. And one, there's two breaks. And one of them is a break where he identifies a wife. And he does this five times in this. We'll talk more about that next week. And the other break is in verse 2. And it's what I want to look at this week. This break only happens twice. Look at verse 2. It's at the end. Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez. See, instead of going straight from, if you look at the verse, instead of going straight from Jacob to his son Judah to his son Perez, Matthew inserts this little phrase, this three words in the English language, and his brothers. And he does it again in verse 11. Skip down with me. And Josiah, the father of Jeconia, and his brothers. It's really a fascinating thing to see what he's doing here. Um, And I know if you're hearing this for the first time, you're thinking, you're really wigging out over three little words there. Uh, But we've been talking about this for a few months and have been prepping for this for a few months. And so my mind's been here for a few months. And the the more you read and the more you pray and the more you look and the more you read the Old Testament, you realize that this thing is filled with meaning, filled with with meaning because he can he can get the genealogy done you need to know this he can get the genealogy done without mentioning these people he doesn't have to detract from the from his rhythm 
So why does he do that? We, we need to ask the question. When you read the Bible and you see a, a pattern and there's a distract, detraction from it, you need to ask the question, why is that there? What's going on? Well, he, to, let's look at this and his brother's phase. And, and to pick up on this, you've got to have a, a particular understanding, really, of the final third of the book of Genesis, which is really all about Judah and his brothers. And we looked at the book of Genesis, actually the life of, of Joseph on Sunday morning with the students. And we spent a little bit of time in the life of Judah. It, so let me just recap it for you. You don't have to turn there, but you can write these things down and go back and read it. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph, he provokes his brothers to anger. He's a, he's a, he's a snotty-nosed favorite son. I don't know that for sure, but he is the favorite son. And they set out to kill him. Uh, But really, in a greedy attempt to spare his brother's life, Judah comes up with this idea to sell his brother into slavery, which many would say is a fate fate worse than, than death. And then in Genesis 38, Judah's weaknesses come full bloom. It's it's really an incredible story. And and the, the gist of it is this that Judah has a son that dies. And he responds very poorly. Uh, He refuses to take care of his son's widow. And secondly, he commits adultery with someone he thought was a prostitute. It's a a wicked story. It's not really a prostitute. It's his daughter-in-law. It's a wicked story. So Judah, here you have Judah, this seasoned sinner. But then things change. You get to the end of Genesis and Judah has truly been transformed. In Genesis 43, 8 through 10, the entire family is in this life and death situation. They're faced with famine. Uh, Their dad is really being unreasonable at this point. And to solve the situation, to save his entire family, Judah offers his life as a sacrifice. He puts himself in the place to sacrifice his own life to rescue his entire family. And then in chapter 44, it's the only occurrence, the only other occurrence in the Bible where we get this phrase, Judah and his brothers. And we find Judah once again sacrificing himself to save his brothers. So by the time we get to 49 verses 8 through 12, which is what Floyd read for us earlier, by the time we get here in this place, Judah has been elevated over his brothers. But why? Why? He really lives a scandalous life if you read it. Why would he be elevated? Because at first glance, all of those chapters are about Joseph. Now, Joseph may be the main character, but he's not the point of those stories. Judah is. By the time, time and time again, we could look at this, and I, I I told you about a few of them, Judah is willing to go anything whatsoever, even death, for the deliverance of his brothers. He's become the leader and the savior of his family by his willingness to sacrifice himself on their behalf. And we don't have time to to look at this today, but if you continue to go down Matthew's uh, genealogy here, what he's recorded, you get down to verse 11. And we hear 
about Jeconia and his brothers. He does this essentially the same thing. And, and Matthew here, when he records this, the reason he picks up from this genealogy, this tight cadence, he's, he's listening. They, they didn't have to list the name of women, and they didn't have to list the name of these others. He picks up from this. He detracts from this for a reason. He's drawing our imagination to the foundational stories of Israel. And listen, I know it doesn't sound like Noah's Ark, but these are foundational stories in the history of Israel. And if your mind doesn't go there, let me push on you a little bit. Your mind should go there. Our minds don't go there because we don't understand, or we don't know, rather, the Old Testament well enough. But all of these names are there for a reason. And he's, he's drawing our imagination to these foundational stories Stories to say that Jesus is the kingly ruler that Israel has been waiting for. The long await is over. And he, like Jeconia and Judah before him, will save his people by laying down his life. The creator king has fulfilled his once and for all promise to Abraham. To rescue the entire universe, the entire creation, the whole world from its brokenness. So through Abraham and his family, God promised that he would bring forgiveness to sin to all nations. Jesus Christ is the climax of the long story, the long road of redemption. So the creator of the world who entered into a unique relationship with Abraham and promised him that through his offspring, through Israel, he would do something to rescue us and this world from our brokenness. Jesus is what God did. That's his response. That's his answer. Jesus is what God did. That's the gospel. Jesus is God's response to all of the promises. The New Testament says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. He's the long-awaited king. He's the Messiah. He is God with us. It's the gospel. That's what God did. He sent Christ what child is this? It's the child king. It's the story of Jesus as the once and for all fulfillment of God's once and for all plan to make everything brand new. And he does this by laying down his life for his brothers. But here's, here's the question, because many of you would shake your heads and say, yes, I know that. I know that that baby that's in the manger is the, is the baby that will grow up and go to the cross. But do you believe what I'm saying here this morning? Do you believe that Jesus is God's once and for all solution to sin and evil and death? Do you believe that? Do you believe that by laying down his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute, that Jesus opens the door to new creation? Do you believe that Jesus is the solution to your sin? Not just my, you know he's the solution to my sin. Is he the solution to your sin? Do you trust in Jesus as the world's true Lord? As your Lord? Have you placed your faith in him, trusting that the real weight of your sin can and will be dealt with? 
Do you believe that this way alone is the way that you are restored to a right relationship with God himself, the creator of all things? Are you leaning on this? Have you centered your whole life on this? Do you believe this in such a way that it is where your hope is? There, there is, we, we talked about this for a little bit this morning in Sunday school. There is a way to believe this, but doubt it. Are you leaning on this like you would look into the eye of a wayward son or daughter and say, I believe in you. I believe in you. Come back. Some of you have looked and are looking into the eyes of your children and saying, please come back. I believe in you because I believe in Jesus Christ. Do you believe what I've said in this this morning in a very simple genealogy that Jesus Christ, when Matthew records this, he's saying, and his brothers, because he wants you to know that Jesus is the one that's going to lay his life down for his brothers. You know that, right? I am a son of God. I'm a brother of Jesus Christ. I'm a child of the king. Do you know where your identity is? Not just to believe it here and then be skeptical about it, but do you believe this in a way that you lean on it, you trust on it, you bank on it? It's the only way. All my hope is here. I've centered my entire life around this because that is absolutely the only place where my hope is. Christmas is about a child, but it is about a child that will sacrifice himself that will substitute himself, that will lay his life down for his brothers. And he did that. Listen, if believing this... Let me, let me read this quote. In St. Augustine, he wrote, he wrote this. The first coming of Christ the Lord, God's Son, and our God was in obscurity. The second will be in the sight of the whole world. When he came in obscurity, no one recognized him but his own servants... When he comes openly, he will be known by both good people and bad. When he came in obscurity, it was to be judged. And when he comes openly, it will be to judge. Do you believe this? Are you leaning on this? I I said this to the students this morning. You know what it feels like because you've either said it or you've had it said to you. Where you, you have someone look, you're telling someone something. And they say, I believe you. And you know with everything they are, that you are, that they don't trust what you're saying. We know we are an age of people that are skeptics. We, be, we believe this, but we don't trust it. We don't lean on it. Are you leaning on this in such a way that you believe this is your only hope? Jesus Christ is your only hope. The sacrifice that Matthew is recording here, that he will lay his life down for his brothers is your only hope to be restored to right relationship with God. If believing this is difficult for you, because I know that that is the case for some, there are people, few they may be, I think, but there are people in this room that this is difficult. I want to encourage you to work hard To sort this out. Don't hear this today. And leave here and pass it off. And wait for another Christmas for you to come. Or another Easter for you to come and to hear a message. Do not let this pass by easily. You work this out. 
If this is true, and it is, that is the most important thing that you can work out. If this is difficult for you to believe, then you lean on Edward. You lean on myself. You lean. There are people in this church that want to help you sort through this. To navigate this. Are you leaning on this? And when you're not or where you're not, if you don't believe this, that Jesus is the one true answer to the long-awaited promises of the entire Bible. Let us help you sort that out. Not to rescue you and force you to believe something, but to help you navigate that. You need to work hard. Advent is a time to reflect on where you are in your faith. Do you believe that this child is a child that will sacrifice himself? And if so, how does that impact you? How does that impact me? What does that mean for my life? It has meaning. You can't pretend it doesn't have meaning. It has meaning. But there's more here. That's just the introduction. Just kidding. He's not only our sacrifice. Listen, this is for everyone else. His sacrifice is our example. To follow Jesus is not only to believe in his sacrificial life and death. To follow Jesus is to mimic his sacrificial way of living. Listen, I'm not talking about what house you live in today. Just a few chapters down the road in Matthew's gospel, I believe before I was on, back on staff here a year ago that Edward preached through the Beatitudes. Just in a few chapters in Matthew's gospel, we'll hear Jesus declare this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Here's my question for those that believe Jesus is the answer this morning. You, you could say yes and amen to everything I just said, but for he, so this is the question for us. Are you going to inherit anything? When he says this, he's actually quoting from Psalm 37. And is this truly, it's a soul shattering challenge. To commit ourselves to the way of meekness and humility out of faith and confidence that when Jesus returns, it will be the meek and the humble who will inherit the earth. Listen, this is tricky. This is absolutely tricky. I've had conversations with some of you because your vocations How do you work this out, right? The military? Humble. Meek. How do you work that out? You're an attorney? How do you work that out? I've had that conversation with an attorney in our our congregation. Like, how how does that work for you? Sports, athletes, right? Your whole life is built around meekness. So how how do you juggle that? It's tricky when your neighbor is obnoxious. Right? And some of you have obnoxious neighbors. I've had obnoxious neighbors and it's tricky. How do you build your entire life on meekness out of a deep? I'm not, I'm not saying that you can quote the book. I mean a deep. In the depths of who you truly are. A deep faith that is that this is the ticket. A life built on meekness is the ticket to inheriting the earth someday. It's tricky in marriage, isn't it? 
especially if you have a rough marriage. It's tricky in the face of evil, right? But you know what? We have a pattern. Read the Gospels. You just read them, and we have a pattern. And the pattern is humility with confidence. Humility now with a deep confidence that Christ will return and all of your suffering will be vindicated. So my question for you is, are you marked by meekness? Listen. My kids, are our kids gone? Have you ever raised three kids who are all fighting for the best seat in the minivan? It's hard. It's hard. It's inefficient. Listen, I'm, I'm not giggling about this. It, 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 there are things inside of me that I did not know were there. I'm serious. And I didn't know that till we had children. And I realized that I was not as patient and meek a person as I thought I was. This is tricky. But when I read the Gospels, I have a pattern. Everything in our culture says that my rights are what I fight for. And when we read the Gospels, when we read the Bible, period, but when we read the Gospels in the life of Jesus Christ, we see a life that is laid down. And He says that the meek shall inherit the earth. There is a king, and because of his meekness, all of this earth will be his reward. And he is our savior and our example. So what child is this? He's a child that sacrifices and substitutes himself for you. Let's pray. Father, as we breathe deep and we settle in, the desire of my heart is, is for us to feel this, this gigantic question mark that the Old Testament ends with. This pregnant pause as if it's a, a mission failed. It's, a, it's an mission that hasn't been completed And then we jump into Matthew's incredible, incredible gospel. And we hear, these are the genealogy. This is the generations of. This is the genesis of. This is the the event that's long been awaited for. But I don't want us to escape here without asking those questions. Do we believe this and where we do where we are leaning on this like we would look into the eyes of someone so that they would know that that friend that is in great need when we look into their eyes and say I'm with you I believe in you when we're trusting in that we look into this and we believe that you are saying 
you've said by your son Christ, I'm with you. I'm your great rescue. And we trust in that. Where where that is not the case, Lord. Oh, I pray that in these moments we would would work hard to sort that out. And if we have to continue doing that as we leave this place, may it be so. Oh, but I pray that we wouldn't try to run away from that wrestling. That we would rightly wrestle with God. Father, where we believe this, we shout a hearty amen that God, how he rescued was through his son Christ and his sacrifice, sacrificial death and his substitution in my place where we can shout amen with that. May we ask ourselves, Do we mimic his example? Do we look into the mirror only as a relic or do we look into the mirror and let it read us? Is our life, are our lives marked by meekness? Father, where they're not, for, for both of us in the room, Where we're not right, according to your word. May we confess that this morning and repent of that. Because even for those in this room whose life is not marked by meekness. Where there is a right heart, there is a right relationship. Father, as we progress through this season of Advent. We want to do this slowly and intentionally, and we want to continue taking a look at your word and answering this question. What child is this? Oh, he came as a baby, but he will return as a warrior. Augustine got it right. There was hardly a one that knew him in that day, but there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we herald the good news of King Jesus. We pray these things in his mighty name. Amen.